0: This edition of eternal leadership has been brought to you by refer.com. If you work in a field where referrals are a key part of your business, check out refer.com and right now get 14 days free. When you sign up at refer.com slash eternal leadership. Thanks.
1: When I started working on the book, my, my writing coach said, now whatever you do, do not write a book and ain't an awful book. He said, no, no, ain't an awful books. You know, those are just awful. You know, wagging your finger at all the bad things out there. I said, those are just depressing. He said, write a book with hope and skills. So I researched and found out that America is leaving billions of dollars on the table because of the entitlement issue. What could I do to find the skills that would help people come out of it? And I found them and they work with uh, the people I work with. So I wanted to give the skills to everybody.
0: Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Dr. John Townsend. Now, Dr. Townsend is going to be talking to us about his book, The Entitlement Cure, and you'll soon find out entitlement isn't necessarily a millennial thing, despite popular opinion. It spans the generations. So without further ado, here's how my co-host John Ramstead and I got this conversation started on this edition of Eternal Leadership.
2: Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, I'm really excited to announce we have Dr. John Townsend. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Now, you, uh, I first became aware of your work when I read this incredible book called Boundaries. And I was just sharing with you that now that I have teenagers, I reread the book and you said, hey, you really have to list, uh, go read the book uh, Boundaries for Teenagers. So honestly, my wife and I, I'll guarantee you, uh, we're going to be digging into that here uh, right away. But uh, I mean, just the work that you've done, just a uh, selling author, business consultant, leadership coach, psychologist. Uh, I just cannot think of somebody better to come on and really talk about this, what we're going to be talking about today, and you have a book around it uh, called The Entitlement Cure, Finding Success in Doing Hard Things the Right Way. Um, I've read this book. It's fantastic. I actually It's hard for me to read because I only have one eye that works, and I've gotten through 90% of this book uh, just in the last couple days since uh, I picked up a copy of it, and it is Fabulous! So, um, you know, before we dive into this book, John, and what it's uh, what it's all about, and there's just some incredible teaching. So, everybody, just stay tuned because uh, you're going to love this interview. But I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your background, your story, your journey, and how you got to where you are today, and 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 what has really, uh, I think, really kind of focused your heart and your life on just really this whole topic of leadership.
1: Sure. Um, well, thanks, John. It's great to be on here with you and Steve. It's, you know, I love what you guys do and the impact you're making. A um, short story is: um, I got a master's in theology from Dallas Seminary, thinking I was going to go into the ministry, but I got called into psychology. Which a lot of people go, "Why would you do that?" Well, I don't know. I got called, and so then I got a doctorate in clinical psychology from Rosemary School of Psychology on Biola Campus in Los Angeles. And uh, then Henry Cloud, and that's when we and I started uh, doing all of our work. We began writing a lot, speaking a lot. We created a health system and a health company. And about twenty years ago, um, I began getting calls from leaders who said, "Look, I'm not depressed, and my marriage is pretty good, and I'm not on, my kids aren't on drugs. But you know, you, you, <laughs> I'd like to have your help." <laughs> now, what I realized was that uh, that organizations and leaders need help in. Not only the strategic aspects, you know, the EBITDA and, and KPIs and all the, all the metrics. They also needed help on the people factor, how to relate to people better, how to be healthier themselves, how to have the tools they need internally, not just the strategic tools. So I got my pencil out and took the, the, the growth model that we had developed uh, that had to do with clinical issues, depression, anxiety, and so forth. And adapted it to a biblical growth model of helping leaders and organizations take wherever they are. They can be, they can have struggles and have them, them to be good organizations. Or in a Jim Collins' world, we can go from good to great or from great to greater. So I modified and contextualized it so that leaders could be helped. And so most of my time is spent with leaders and organizations now helping them grow and do the work. Uh, I also have uh, an institute now, the, uh, the Townsend Institute of Leadership and counseling which just opened up uh, in August of 2015 where we have an online program where you can get a masters in organizational leadership or a masters in counseling or a degree in executive coaching all online it's all my material with uh, a lot of uh, the, what I call the fellows I have got some friends who are been, been helping and, and do videos for this content too such as Henry Cloud and people you'll know like a Ken Blanchard uh, John Ortberg Uh, Jim Daly, CEO of Focus on the Family. Uh, New York Times bestselling people like that. So um, we're now training people to take the growth model and help them to be better leaders themselves.
2: Yeah, we've had Ken Blanchard on, and uh, uh, he was fabulous. Now, uh, you know, before we talk about the book here, uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that growth model and somebody that, you know, goes through, looks at, you know, the work that you're doing as a leader and incorporates that. What what do they get out of that?
1: Well, the the whole goal of any leader's impact on organization is performance, right? right. You got you, you whatever it is. If it's a uh, Acme Staples, or if it's a church, or if it's a shoe store, or if it's a ministry, or whatever, it's got to perform right and, and do the things that the mission says do. And there are two aspects that I believe are are involved in performance. One is the strategic tactical skills. Right. What's our product? What's our distinctive? How do we market correctly? How do we have an excellent, you know, brand? But the other factor is teams, relationships, and culture. And teams, relationships, and culture is the part where a lot of things break down. You know, um, one of the people that I studied when I was studying leadership was Peter Drucker, And he had a great quote. He said, um, culture will eat strategy for breakfast. And I found that so true that you've got to make sure that people are... Catalyze together the, the right people that they can communicate they can solve problems and more than anything that they can trust each other So I work a lot with helping leaders and teams to, to drive the mission
2: You know with that said John what what led you to write this book specifically the entitlement cure?
1: Well for a few years. I've been watching the entitlement phenomenon I guess you might say and you can see it on time and CNN and Fox and Newsweek Um, that there is a new culture called entitlement which I define the book as having two components. It's an attitude really, an attitude with two components. The first is I'm not responsible for my life. Somebody else is. And I'm not responsible for my success or failure. Somebody else is. And the second one is I deserve special treatment. I should get in the back of the line. I should get in the front of the line. And I noticed it with the leaders I was working with were having terrible problems with motivation and performance and gosh, a work ethic with their workers. And also the workers were having a problem with some of the leaders too. Then I found it not only there, but I found in the families of the people I work with. And then unfortunately I found in the church because the church is made of people who have issues too. And I began noticing that um, it's really causing a problem, this attitude. So I decided to write a book to help people know their skills about this. And that's why the book's called The Entitlement Cure because when I started working on the book, my, my writing coach said, now whatever do you do, do not write a book, an ain't an awful book. He said, no, no ain't an awful books. You know, those are just awful, you know, wagging your finger at all the bad things out there. I said, that those are just depressing. He said, write a book with hope and skills. So I researched it and found out that America's leaving billions of dollars on the table because of the entitlement issue. What could I do to find the skills that would help people come out of it? And I found them and they work with uh, the people I work with. So I wanted to give the skills to everybody
2: you know, it's interesting that, you know, the work I do in corporations, uh, you know, typically only about 30% of employees are engaged, the 70% that are not engaged. uh, And it's a huge frustration with my clients that are CEOs, business owners, especially with this millennial generation, this word entitlement comes up all the time. But if you look at the economic cost, it's over $500 billion a year, depending on how you look at it, whether it's Gallup or BANA on on these folks that are entitled so if i'm a leader and i'm in the company first of all let's define the problem the disease how would you look at somebody or how somebody's interacting or working either in church or at work and and say well okay there's there's a entitlement problem and now and then let's talk about some what are some of the things that we can do to address that
1: Okay, uh, well, first up, I'd like to do a little bit of clarifying here because it's, it's people a lot of times say, yeah, this is a millennial book. No, this isn't a millennial book. I love millennials and I don't see millennials as any worse or better than anybody else. So it's not a generational book or a socioeconomic targeting book. I found that there are some really cool 20-year-olds that are friends of mine who have a great work ethic and a great spiritual life and vibrant and they want to help the world. And guess what? I've also found some 85-year-old people who are total nightmares and think it's all about them. So I really try to say it's a human problem. And okay. it, started, it started, guess when? It started in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve decided to take matters into their own hands. So I try to make it a book about people.
2: And, and you did that. And um, you know, the reason I brought that up, I think... You know, there's a lot of people our age, generation, let's say X and baby boomers, uh, that are really trying to adapt some of their leadership styles and principles. And there's just some disconnects between the generations, Mm -hmm. and that almost becomes a default statement. They're entitled, so I don't know how to work with them. But I totally agree with you. Uh, From my work, this is across, this is everywhere. From you know my my business partners that I've been in with, to my kids, to people we know. So.
1: Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you've got a belly button, you might be subject to entitlement.
2: So, John, you've described what entitlement is, and you wrote a book, and I love, love your how you framed it up, right? It's about solutions, and it's about hope. So, so uh, walk us through this framework. You know, you start out, and you know, what's God's framework for the right way of life in the book? So, uh, where, where do we go next once we recognize it, either in ourselves or people around us?
1: He does indeed have a framework, John, and um, the framework I discovered in the Bible, which is backed up with all sorts of research, neurological research, I study neuroscience, uh, performance research, leadership research. I summarized God's solution is called the hard way, that God looks at life and says, I'm gonna be successful because I'm God, and i want to teach my people to be successful, and there's no shortcut to it, it's the hard way. And I define the hard way in the book as the habit of doing not what is convenient but what is best to achieve an outcome. No shortcuts, no microwaves, life is an oven. And I take it from Isaiah chapter 50, verse seven, where Jesus is talking in the pre-incarnate Christ before he's, he comes to earth on, in uh, Matthew, where it says, I have set my face like a flint, because the sovereign Lord is with me, that Jesus knew he was going towards a lot of of pain, and he set his face like a flint. And in the Hebrew, it's like you clench your teeth, like remember, think about some hard conversation you know you gotta have, but you've been dreading it, and you kinda clench your teeth, I gotta make that phone call, this customer's mad at me, this client's not happy, or when you have gotta do some report that's just overwhelming and you don't have time for it, you set your face like a flint. That's how God operates with life and his people, every single day. So I took that concept of that life is hard, but it's good. And I came up with a bunch of skills. Let me just give you one example. One skill skill that helps is called, um, it's about our language, John. It says, um, says change the terms I deserve to, I am responsible from, I deserve to I'm responsible. Now we found out in the neurological research that the words we use make a huge difference in how we operate and feel and behave. And entitlement says, I deserve everything. I deserve something for nothing. Now, I'm not talking about the entitlement that we should get, like, you know, our military veterans that went in harm's way for us, I want them entitled to everything, medical care, psychiatric care, financial care, because they did what they did, or people that are so impoverished they don't have a chance. You know, that's when the church and the government do need to help. I'm talking about this psychological attitude of, of entitlement, which says, I just deserve to, you know, uh, to be happy. Well, what are you doing to be happy? I just deserve it. Or I deserve a great marriage. Somebody's just going to, you know, my wife or my husband's just going to change me. No, I've got to roll up my sleeves and do things. I deserve great kids. Well, no, you've got to do something. And that changed the words to I'm responsible. I'm responsible to do what it takes to be happy. I'm responsible to do a good business. I'm responsible to have good kids. I'm responsible to have a great marriage. And that changed everything. Can I, can I tell you a funny story about that? Yeah. I've work, been working on this book a couple of years, and a friend of mine uh, in Dallas said, uh, who was principal of a Christian uh, school there said, can you come talk to the parents about entitlement because Dallas is an affluent area, and Barbie and I raised our kids in Orange County, California, which is an affluent area, and have you raised kids as Christians in an affluent area and all that mess? And they said, can you help these parents? Because, you know, they, when Johnny's coming to them saying, I'm 16 now, and I deserve a Beamer," and like, you know, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> stuff like that. Crazy stuff. Right. So I, said, I said, sure. So uh, I flew over there and before I did, I remembered, I, remembered, I knew that I had uh, one of my kids was going to college in Dallas. So I called Ricky and I said, Hey, would you mind coming to the last five minutes of this talk I'm giving at a school? Because pe- parents want to see what came out of the oven. They don't want to see me. They want to see the end product of this stuff. And we're going to talk about entitlement. Just think about how mom and I raised you as a pretty normal kid um, in an entitled area trying to be Christian. He goes, sure, whatever. So, you know, that's what Whatever. Say. If you're 20, you say whatever. So I said, yeah. thanks. So I show up and I'm talking to I don't know, 100, 200 parents. And we're talking about, you know, should I give Sally an iPhone because she's nine now and she deserves it. And I'm saying, no, that's crazy. Don't do that. And I said, you know, now, now my son is nowhere around. He's still in class. So he didn't know what I'm saying. I said, well, one of the things we try to do is we try to kill the kids. You know, you need a lot of things. God gave mom and me to you to give you love and faith and structure and fun and opportunities and education because we want to equip you to go out and do good things in the world. So we, he gave you to us and us to you because you need a lot of things and we want to help you meet your needs. But guys, you don't deserve anything. You need a lot. You don't deserve anything. So don't come to us with, I deserve a car. I don't deserve a phone. We'll find out what you need. And so I just mentioned that, and then the, the anxious parents are writing all this down, okay. My son walks in five minutes before I'm supposed to be done. I said, come on up here. Okay, here's the end product. Here's the guy you want to hear from. Tell us a little bit about, you know, raising Christian kids in an affluent area. And my son says, hi, I'm in college, I'm a business major, and I um, was driving up here I was trying to think what I was going to say, and the one thing I can remember is my dad used to always say, you don't deserve anything. <laughs> And the parents are all freaking out and said, I didn't make that up. He really remembered it. So (laughs) when when you help people to see that there's work involved and effort involved, it gets out of the deserve mentality because deserve is a disempowering statement. Deserve means somebody out there, my parents, God, the government, the church, somebody's got to give it to me. I'm, I'm not empowered at all. I'm helpless. But when you say I'm responsible, that's an empowering statement. I have the power. I've got to have the choices to go do it. So you got to change the language.
2: Well, you're talking about changing the language. So you know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking of this whole concept of ownership. And if you have kids or employees or even yourself, and you're really talking about making a shift in that mindset toward one of ownership, which leads to empowerment. So when people are maybe stuck uh, with this as the the piece that they're working on, how do you move them in that direction toward ownership from feeling like they deserve?
1: Well, you know, it's so funny how I, I love it when God's word gets the final say, so with the research, because I'm, I, I'm a research wonk and I yeah. love it when, when the research goes, Hey, God was right all along. The research is, has, has basically supported the, the two things that God uses to motivate people to get out of entitlement and into hard ways and doing things that hard the right way. The first one is a vulnerable conversation. Called a, I call it an impact statement. If you've got a title people in your life, employees, family members, friends, the first thing you come to them in, in, in a vulnerable way, not in a mean sort of, you know, great Santini way, but in a vulnerable way, say, I want to let you know how being late 40 minutes to every meeting uh, is impacting us. Um, we struggle because we depend on your report coming in, we depend on your input. And, when, and the whole team is in, in, impacted when you when you show up consistently, like, we've got a problem here. See, that's a vulnerable statement. That wasn't an angry statement. That wasn't a judging statement. It was an impact statement. Here's how you impact us. Like when God says to, to us, he said, Jerusalem, I wish I could have put you under my wing like a hen does or chicks, but you would not. Here's how you impact me. But there's a second way, because some people are have kind of pretty serious entitlement, and They don't listen to words of vulnerability or impact. They kind of like into themselves. And the second thing is actions and consequences. And that's when you sometimes have to say to say to somebody, if these continue, we'll have to take some action. This may be an HR issue. It may be a demotion issue. It may be that things aren't going to work out. But God's system is always start off with impact in the words and move to consequences. And that tends to break people out of the dynamic.
2: So, and if you're working with somebody in that, you you've had those conversations. Here's the impact statement. Here's what this means. You've had then had the the conversation. Here's the consequences. Here, here's we're going to have a clear clear agreement. We're not going to set expectations. This isn't going to be soft. This is what we expect. So here's our agreement on what you need to do. Do you do you have everything you need to do that? And then if they fail to live up to that, um, and they're still really stuck in this entitlement kind of mindset, uh, what, what are your thoughts on how to work with that person next? Is it just you just cut them loose if they just haven't lived up to that? Or do you just keep trying to mentor them?
1: No, you, you have to you have to address the problem at two levels, John. Um, they, they have quotas and they have expectations and goals. And that's what you, you know, the, the, the lag indicator. That's the that's the fruit. That's what you got to have from them. You know number of phone calls number amount of money brought in number of machines to change whatever you know that's the the definable fruit yeah you also got to go after the attitude as well and that's you've got to have conversations with them about um, let's take a look at what um, what your behavior is doing to yourself and other people because you see people people develop entitlement for some reasons, and if all you do is stick to the fruit and just say well, I'm going to you know, lay down the hammer. Like I, I was working with a, a corporation a few months ago having dinner with a sales manager. I said, how's it going? He said, it's going pretty good. I said, what's going on? He goes, well, my, my people, he just taken the role. It's about a year, been doing about a year. He said, my people aren't doing very well. I said, what are you saying? He said, well, I'm telling them, Hey, you're going to lose your job if you don't work harder. And I said, that's your leadership. He goes, yeah, I just told them they're going to lose their job. I said, well, I said that's managing, but you'll never get any rock stars that way. And I said, have you dealt with their attitudes? He goes, no, I just tell them to do their job. I said, have you dealt with their their family situation? No. Have you resourced them? No. <laughs> I went, I'm sorry. You, you're going to get nobody but C-level players. you got to go to the deeper issues. That's why a lot of times a leader will give people that book and say, I want you to look at this book because this deals with maybe an attitude that is all about me. I want you to break through that. Or maybe it deals with the attitude of... Um, You know, your work ethic is sort of um, difficult, and I believe in self-care. I believe in vacations, but we're kind of off the charts in your self-care and vacations. I want you to look at it. And they need to see the principles that are keeping them stuck, because I promise you this, their entitlement is not just affecting their work performance. It is affecting their marriage and their dating life and their spiritual life and their friendships. So you're helping them to grow in a character level. That's why good leadership is always on two levels. We gotta make the quotas, but you've got to go down to the deeper issues. There's a great passage in Proverbs twenty, verse five, John, that says, A person's heart are deep waters, and a person of understanding draws them out. And a good leader says, Let's draw out where this what this attitude is about. And now, a leader doesn't have to be a shrink or a psychologist or a spiritual director, but a leader does need to go deeper than God. Uh, you didn't make a cut.
2: Well, I love that you quoted that verse. That's that's like the guiding you know, verse for uh a lot of Christian coaching. You know, it's one I have actually have up here on my wall in my office. So, you know, let's let's take that even farther because you're really talking about leadership, which is your heart, versus just managing people and processes. Um, and you spend a lot of time in the book talking about discipline and structure. So if if I'm in a company and I have a large team that I'm managing and I'm, and I'm listening to this conversation, I'm like, wow, there's definitely some changes I need to make on just how I work with my peers, with my team. Um, what's the conversation you would have with that person listening on really what that would look like? Some practical things they can start doing.
1: One great thing is to model the hard way in front of them so that it's caught instead of taught. Love Love that. Words. To, to be the leader that says at the beginning of the weekly team meeting, you know, we're going to start being a little more vulnerable here because I think I give you the impression that I'm bulletproof, that I've got the big S on my chest, and you know, it's not true. By the way, guys, um, this is for you and me in the audience, John, this is not in the team meeting. The research has said that the, that the invulnerable leader is not a person people would walk over hot coals for. Because they can't identify, it's the vulnerable leader who says, "I struggle." That people will walk all all over hot coals for. So, if you want loyalty, if you want people to be, you know, bought in, you got to be vulnerable. That's what the research is telling us. So,
2: and you can't you can't develop trust with just one person or with a team unless you're vulnerable because they need to see you as a person.
1: There you go. So, the team meeting. One thing I'll do with some of my clients is to say, every team meeting, you'll just say, "Guys, um." You know, we're going to just talk amongst ourselves. We're going to have the reports, and you know, we're going to have the marketing report, the finance report, the sales report, HR report. We'll do all that. But I just want to tell you first, just on a personal level, um, I think I let you down this week. Um, I uh, was kind of stuck on a project, and I think I ignored several of you, and I made, and actually, I made some bad judgment calls. And I'm sorry about that because I want to be a better leader. Oh my goodness, you will not believe the changes I've seen in teams, and the entitlement they have when the, when the leader says, this is me, they the, the people feel more permission to say, well, if you can say that you've got problems and you've got negative realities in your life, I do too. And if there's anything that helps get rid of entitlement, it's that grandiose, unperfect idea to say, look, we're all flawed people. And it's a wonderful thing for a leader to do.
2: So, John, as I'm hearing you talk, and I'm just picturing leaders that, you know, have uh, are dealing with entitlement you know, in business, ministry, but where does entitlement really come from?
1: Well, it comes from the human condition. We're flawed beings, but we see it. I actually do believe after my research, John, that it's worse than it's ever been. I mean, uh, we, see, we see it in all kinds of contexts. And w- what I've noticed is that there are several kind of perfect storm forces. One of them is the breakdown of the family where, you know, because there's chaos and divorce and, you know, lots of, l- lacks of structure in the family, the child sort of becomes an entity to themselves. Particularly there is also the helicopter parent. And we all know what that is. That's the, yep. that creates somebody who's always doing the laundry for somebody 39 years old, and does it wants junior to have a trophy that's bigger than him when, you know, he never made it past the third string on the soccer team and all that. We also have a culture uh, that kind of says it's all about me. I mean, I know I deserve a break today because that's what McDonald's says, but we don't deserve everything, right? Uh, and we also see it in, uh, in our in our in our leadership where kind of like it's, it's the person who's a little more selfish that kind of wins. And we also see it in the church, unfortunately, I'm a church guy, but we see it kind of the entertainment church where instead of I'm going there to to grow and learn and participate, I'm there to be entertained. Yeah, can, can I tell you another story about all this? Yeah, absolutely. Great example of this is um, my wife and I were having our okay how was your day dinner and she said your jaw's going to drop on this story I said well tell me she says well I've got a friend who's HR uh, uh, runs HR in a large company and she said the lady her friend was interviewing a kid I don't know 23 years old kid for a job pretty good job like you know five figure job you know just out of college he had good resume went to a good school he had good references and you know it's looks like a good fit and um it's supposed to be a 45 minute interview well 20 minutes into the interview she stops and says thanks very much sam um it's not going to be a fit for us but i appreciate you coming down and he's a little surprised he says well it's a 45 minute interview she goes i know it's just not going to work but thanks so much for coming He says, well can you tell me why and she says sure i would be glad to do you realize the whole time i've been interviewing you that you've been texting really really so my jaw dropped. And then my wife says, okay, here's the other jaw dropper. He says, guess what happened when the helicopter parents called the HR person? They got mad at the HR person because she didn't understand how special Junior was. Great story.
2: Hold on a sec. This is, this is a real story. So the, the, the kid gets walked out of the door and mom and dad call the HR person. Mom
1: and dad call within a few hours and bring her out.
2: All right. So you're talking about something that's way bigger. You know, before we started recording, you you said something (laughs) that I wrote down here that, you know, that everything in business is going to shift. And there are some cultural tidal ways, the tsunami that entitlement is a part of that's going to have to be addressed by leaders today. Or we're going to really find ourselves in some deep weeds here in a very short period of time.
1: Well, the deep weeds are going to be there's going to be a diminution of the workforce which is bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're supposed to be bringing people in who are gonna take over and keep developing and, and, and creating. And they're finding out a lot of, a lot of uh, people are saying, especially the younger generations, um, I gotta have so much time off for me and the meaningful things I do, and um, I need to have this much money, and I'll discuss some else. So, you know, getting people to work overtime, which you have to sometimes, and weekends, which you have to sometimes, there's a real problem in also keeping people focused at work. They're having to change their training techniques to address all that. It's a big deal.
2: So, you know, what are some things that people can do, leaders today, to develop that sense of ownership, um, you know, that uh, work ethic, um, you know, the other thing? I'm just thinking about collaboration. A lot of people that are stuck in that entitlement mentality, they're not looking out for things that are in the best interest of the team or helping other people because they, may, they tend to make it about them.
1: Why don't I just give you another one of the skills in the book? I think I'll answer that question.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, It's called keep inconvenient commitments. Keep inconvenient commitments. We now have a culture that says uh, when you're at at Starbucks waiting for somebody who texts you like five minutes into it, and they say, well, I'm not going to make it. something else happen. And it's supposed to be cool. Like, don't worry about it. I'm not anal retentive. I'm kind of chill. And people don't make commitments for kind of crazy reasons. Or you're going to go off a vacation with another couple and the last minute they say, well, somebody with a bigger condo invited us to go or whatever. And people make promises they don't mean a whole lot. And it's really being destructive to uh, not only American business, but worldwide. <clears throat> but when you look at the reality, the world is held together on commitments. Let's think about God for a second. He wrote this big book that we learn from. It's called the Old Testament and New Testament. Do you know what the, the Bible was called before it was called the Old Testament and New Testament? Um, no. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. God was making um. a promise. He was saying, Whatever you do, I'm making a, I'm going to keep my promise. And then we see promises all the way through world history. What do nations do to keep from killing each other? They make treaties. I'm not going to invade your borders if you don't invade mine. That's why we've got such a mess in the world because they're not holding up to their treaties. Or we see in business, we call it contracts. You know, I'll, I'll do so many deliveries and services and products, if you'll do this, and here's the consequences for not doing that. A contract keeps people honest. And in marriage, we have the marriage vows. I promise for richer, or poorer, or sicker or in health, and all this sort of thing. Well, when you work with an entitled population, they don't take those seriously. And you have to look at what the Bible says. You know, Proverbs 15 says, a personal, I mean, sorry, Psalms 15 says, A person will swear to their own hurt. If I swear I'm going to do something, even if they're going to be disadvantageous to me, and I've done this in business, I've made a deal and regretted it, but I made a promise and I've had to go ahead and follow through. We swear to our own hurt. So you've got to sit down with your people and tell them of the importance of making and keeping promises. It's a big deal in business.
2: Uh, it's huge. And, you know, we've always raised our kids. And my, my, if you ask my kids, they would answer this. We always talk about the A decision and the B decision. Mm-hmm. And the A decision is always maybe the harder decision. But, you know, maybe I said I would be there and then all of a sudden it's, you know, it's Monday afternoon. I'm like, I don't feel like going tonight. Or, uh, you know what, I'm just busy. I don't know if I can get that report done. I can find an excuse to get it done. But the A decision is to do what you said you'd do. It also sometimes involves, you know, it's harder. It takes more work. It's not comfortable. The B decision is that cop-out. And if you can make more A decisions than B decisions, but also something else you talk about in this book very well, when you do make that B decision, because we're human and we're trying to change, you know what, there has to be a point when you go to that person that was the um, beneficiary, uh, I don't know if that's the right word, of that decision to say, you know what, I was wrong. Because you have to start having that mindset where it's also then, it's a way to hold yourself accountable. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's called confession. Yeah. <laughs> and the Bible and neurological research say there's a lot of benefits to say that. You know, we found out that when you, well, number one, entitled people don't like to say I'm wrong. It's uh, It's kind of a... Uh, an affront to their idea themselves, which is that it's never me, and to have to say, I messed up the green account, I'm the guy that lost the account, or I really alienated somebody, or I didn't follow through. They, For some of them, it's like kicking and screaming, and you have to push them to say, look at the objective facts. Did you or did you not make a mistake? I'm not your father, I'm not your judge, I'm not a cop. Did you? And then they, and they'll go... Yeah. And, you know, the first time they say it, they're really grumbling and they're mad because they don't want to feel the shame and the guilt. But after a while, remember the words matter. Within a few weeks, they kind of, hey, screwed up on that. Sorry about that. All of a sudden, you win with it. We found out that there are these things called mirror neurons. I'm going to get a little technical here. There are these neurons in our brains, John that mirror other people's neurons, and we found out this works in business and leadership so well. They, they attached monkeys to these little um, electrodes that, yep. that, that on a big, you know, big screen so you could see it. And when a monkey, who's maybe, I don't know, 10 feet from another monkey, felt sad or glad or mad, the other monkey felt those things too. We found out that mirror neurons can travel across space mainly from the eye contact of one to the other, and they trigger each other. It's sort of like God created a neurological system for empathy. So I can feel what somebody feels and they can feel what I feel is to keep us connected and not killing ourselves. Well, when the entitled person says, sorry about that, and has to look at the other person and he sees the impact of that on the other person, he begins to break the entitlement. They begin to feel what that person feels. And empathy is a great way to get rid of entitlement.
2: You know, as we wrap up this conversation and people have been listening, people in business and ministry and, and around the world, John, what are just some final thoughts you'd love to just leave with people if they've heard this conversation?
1: Well, the main thing is that um, there is no easy way. Sorry, about, I've read a lot, enough books that said, you know, life could be perfect in seven days and I just don't see it. That there's really the hard way, which I talk about in the book, which I think is God's way. But then there's the harder way, and you don't want the harder way. The harder way is you sow and you reap the worst things. You sow entitlement and you reap a bad marriage. You sow entitlement and you reap uh, not doing well at work and you're not successful. So if you're if you're reading this or listening to this podcast and you're a leader, you go, I got entitled people around me. Be the force that helps them to see reality, that helps, them. don't enable them, don't rescue them, be kind to them, but be pushing them into reality because he can't be broken, and the person becomes a pretty nice, hardworking person. So the skills are there, but I promise you, there's no easy way.
2: Yeah, and i just love to give an endorsement for everybody listening because, you know, these concepts we're we're discussing, they're hard. These are some significant leadership challenges. I think they're only going to grow with the nature of the population and what's going on right now. Um, And, John, you do such an amazing job of actually laying out um, what to do, how to be as a leader, how to work with people to develop these, rela- these relationships, tools to start addressing entitlement in your own life, in the lives of those around you. And I, I would guarantee anybody that t- I have holding this book in my hand, if you go through this and you read it and you actually take the time to apply what's in here, the results that you're going to see in your life I- at work, even in your family, your kids are going to be dramatic. So John, thank you for the time for putting this together. I really hope This is something people go out and and take the time and read, not just read it, but take what's in here and actually start putting it in, you know, make that a choice to start taking what's in here uh, and applying it in their lives. So, John, how can people find you? How can they find out more about the book and what you do in your leadership institute?
1: Uh, Dr. Townsend.com. Dr. Townsend.com.
2: Wonderful. All right. Thank you, sir. We sure appreciate
0: your time and look forward to talking to you again soon sometime. Thanks, John. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Townsend or his book, go to eternalleadership.com slash zero nine one. And there we'll have a link to his website and link to purchase the book eternalleadership.com slash zero nine one. And as always, that link is embedded in the summary of this MP3. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by refer.com. When John was building a $300 million book of business as a financial advisor, he used spreadsheets, calendars, CRM, etc., to manage relationships and get business and referrals. refer.com automates all of that work in relationship management. Both John and I use refer.com and we can't recommend it highly enough. Try it for free for 14 days refer.com slash eternal leadership. And also if you go to eternal leadership and also if you go to refer.com slash eternal leadership, you can receive a free report on the five biggest referral killers. Refer.com slash eternal leadership. Next time on eternal leadership, Jeff Gott. Yes, I can stay here in my publishing job and loving life and being comfortable. If I leave it, they're going to do fine. They don't need me. Here's an opportunity to go into a world of helping. Uh, influence generosity and helping open Christians' eyes to the things that they're passionate about. It may not be the world slave trade that ultimately is their call, but to call them to to use what they've been given for the ills of this world to help to help expand the kingdom in this world. Jeff shares the story of moving from business to ministry and now into facilitating generosity for the kingdom. For John Ramstad, I'm Steve Ryder. And thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.